Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. I hope you all found parking okay. No bricks or tomatoes have been thrown at me from the crowd, so we sent out an, we're you know, sending out notices reminding people that with this construction project, which is very exciting, there is a limited amount of parking, so I hope that uh, if you didn't find parking easily next time, you'll, you'll uh, realize that you can use the lot behind St. Mark's Church, which is just off Colonial, and VHS visitors can use that, and obviously uh, the Fine Arts Museum uh, lot is available as well. So I, that's right. If you're a member of the VMFA, you can get in for free. Uh, before we proceed with today's program, uh, let me quickly remind you of our next banner lecture, which will take place here on Thursday, April 17th at noon. That day, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Alan Taylor will deliver a banner lecture entitled The Internal Enemy, Internal Enemy, Slavery and War in Virginia, 1772 to 1832. Uh, the third installment of this year's See You in Class program begins tonight. Uh, the ever popular uh, Robert Winthrop will lead the first of a two-part class entitled Ignored and Neglected, The Underappreciated Architecture of Richmond. Those classes will meet in this room at 5.30 this evening and next Thursday. And for any of these things that I've mentioned, uh, you can find more information about them uh, on our website, vahistorical.org, or pick up information or sign up to join the class tonight at the museum shop on your way out. Now, my final little piece of business before I bring up someone who will introduce the speaker is to ask you all to silence your cell phones, please. Thank you. Um, it's always uh, a part of my introduction to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And today we're delighted to have with us, on a return visit, Todd Culbertson, the editor of the editorial pages at the Times-Dispatch, who will introduce today's speaker. Todd. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yep. Before I get to the formal introduction, I have a gripe I need to register. Uh, last weekend, I had planned to go to Washington uh, to visit the National Gallery of Art, the National Portrait Gallery, and have a nice lunch. Well, when I was having my morning uh, pastry and tea, I started reading The Grandees of Government. And before I knew it, I was well past the time I needed to leave. Uh, so Mr. Tartar simultaneously ruined my weekend, but he also made the weekend because I was very glad to spend Saturday with the book. But anyway, I could have been at the National Gallery, but I'm glad I was uh, at uh, the Starbucks. <laughs> From the formation of the first institutions of representative government and the use of slavery in the 17th century through the American Revolution, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, and into the 21st century, Virginia's history has been marked by obstacles to demographic change, democra democratic change. In his most recent book, today's speaker offers an extended commentary based on primary sources on how these undemocratic institutions and ideas arose and how they were both perpetuated and challenged, which is thorough reevaluation of the interrelationship between the words and actions of Virginia's political leaders. This book provides a new interpretation of Virginia's political history. 
Brent Tarter has been editor for the Virginia Independence Bicentennial Commission, a senior editor at the Library of Virginia, a founding editor of the Library of Virginia's Dictionary of Virginia Biography Project, and a co-founder of the annual Virginia Forum. Other edited books include volumes three to seven of Revolutionary Virginia, The Road to Independence, a documentary record, and the order book and related papers of the Common Hall of the Borough of Norfolk, Virginia, 1736 to 1798. His vast knowledge of the Commonwealth's history is reflected in the many entries he contributed to the Dictionary of Virginia Biography, American National Biography, and the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Brent has also published numerous articles in the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography, Virginia Calvacade, South Atlantic Quarterly, and the Magazine of Virginia Genealogy, to name but a few. He has also contributed to the Library of Virginia's Out of the Box blog and the online Encyclopedia of Virginia. I also might add that the Times-Dispatch editorial page has relied on him as a source of information uh, for many years as well. Please welcome Brent Tarter, who will speak to us today about his book, The Grandees of Government, The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be in the Virginia Historical Society. I've been coming here to read dead people's mail since, well, <laughs> for more than 40 years. I've been coming here to study Virginia's history for about 10% of it. Maybe that's my excuse. When I first began studying Virginia's early 20th century political history more than 40 years ago, three things aroused my attention. Three questions. One, why was it, with all of the political and social problems that Virginia shared with other parts of the South in the 1890s, why was it that Virginia had no viable populist movement? Elsewhere in much of the South, Agrarian reformers, African-Americans, Republicans, people on the outside posed ferocious challenges to the Redeemer governments. And in North Carolina, right next door, they actually took over and ran the state government for several years in the 1890s. Why was it that nothing even remotely similar happened in Virginia in the 1890s? Two, why was it, with all of the national ferment, north and south, east and west, early in the 20th century, did Virginia have no very viable progressive movement? Elsewhere, including elsewhere in the south, you have vigorous reform movements in all of the states looking to regulate railroads, looking to regulate child labor, uh, looking to clean up political corruption. This was going on all over the country for about two decades. In Virginia, there wasn't much. Why? Third question, why was it during the 1930s that Virginia had by far the most hostile congressional delegation in the country towards the New Deal? Only one congressman from Virginia ever got reelected as a New Dealer, and there were only two. <laughs> Elsewhere in the southern states, Maryland, North Carolina, Tennessee, South Carolina, all of the southern states sent congressmen and senators to Washington who were among the most important advocates of the economic and social reform programs of the 1930s. 
Why wasn't Virginia that way? How did Virginia's voters make it that way? Well, actually, the answers to my questions were pretty obvious once I began thinking about them. By the 1890s, the people in charge of Virginia's government, white supremacists, redeemer Democrats, were driving black people out of politics. They were not encouraging ordinary white people to participate in politics. The people who ran things had already made it impossible for a coalition of poor farmers, black people, agrarian reformers to rise up and create a populist movement to begin with. The reason that that took place was that they had already been through this. In the 1870s and 80s, Virginia had exactly that kind of lower class revolution called the Readjuster Movement. I'm going to write a book about this one of these days. The Readjusters were a coalition of poor farmers, white people, black people, Republicans, working men in the cities, people of all races and classes who resented the fact that too much of Virginia's tax money was being sent out of state to pay the interest on an antebellum state debt, and there wasn't enough money left for running the government, and in particular for supporting the popular new public school system. Once the readjusters had finished their work, the Democrats came in, started reducing the size of the electorate, started clamping down on government, and made it impossible for something similar to repeat itself in the 1890s in Virginia. That's why there was no populist movement. The reason there was so little of a progressive movement, the reason there was so few uh, voters who supported the New Deal in the 1930s, was that at the beginning of the 20th century, these Democrats called a new constitutional convention, wrote a new constitution, put it into effect without a referendum of ratification, disfranchised almost all of the remaining black Virginians who still voted, and disfranchised more than half of all the white Virginia voters. There was no constituency left for reform. The people who would elsewhere support progressive and New Deal reform no longer could vote in Virginia. Fewer people voted in Virginia in the first part of the 20th century than during the entire colonial period where only wealthy adult white male property owners could vote. Where was the democracy in that? I thought about those questions and I researched on them for a long time. Then I went broke. <laughs> and I moved to Richmond to work for the old American Revolution Bicentennial Commission. This suddenly threw me back into the revolutionary period. I worked on for eight years on a series of volumes that produced texts and commentary on this long series of conventions and committees that changed Virginia from the English king's largest royal colony into the United States' largest free state. And at the time I was working on the American Revolution, I made friends with um, two other historians who were about my age, Warren Billings and John Kukla, and they were working on trying to reevaluate what was going on in Virginia in the 17th century. They got me interested in the 17th century. I began reading the same things they were reading, and I would listen to them talk when we drank beer, or we drank coffee, oh, excuse me. <laughs> and I began to see some patterns. I didn't go broke again, but I changed jobs again at the Virginia State Library, now the Library of Virginia, where I have worked since the 1970s. And my work at the Library of Virginia 
expanded my horizon a great deal. Uh, I worked on reference works. I worked on helping to publish documentary records and other historic documents. I worked with the exhibitions program. I worked with the educational program. And in particular, I worked on the Dictionary of Virginia Biography, researching, writing, editing, fact-checking, hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of biographies of Virginians, and researching and writing and rejecting thousands of other possible people who were to be included in the Dictionary of Virginia Biography. This took me literally into every single decade of Virginia's history and into the original manuscript and printed records of every, dec every decade. So I have read a lot of dead people's mail by now. <laughs> read a lot of old newspapers, read a lot of old speeches, read a lot of legislation. It's surprising how much you can learn about what people think is important by reading their tax laws. It's not fun, but it is very educational. Those decades of doing that work led to this book. Much of that work was very narrowly focused, you know, trying to find out when some little town doctor got married. Nobody had ever written a biography of him, but it was important to get that straight in order to understand his life, in order to put it into context, in order to put it into a reference work so somebody could look him up and get accurate facts. I did thousands of bits of research like that. Um, I began to think of what I was doing was assembling the pieces for a gigantic mosaic. Tiny little bits of history, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, each one in its own right interesting, each one in its own right important, each one fitting into a bigger picture. But it was not until I had done that for 20 or 30 years that I began to notice that some of my little mosaic tiles for the 20th century were very like some of the little mosaic tiles for the 17th or the 18th or the 19th. So I stepped back. You know how it is when you look at a piece of impressionist art, pointillism, or at a mosaic, it looks different up close than it does from a distance. The grandees of government is what I saw when I looked at it from a distance and saw the patterns. Taught me a couple of things. One is reflected in the book's title. Well, actually in the subtitle. The subtitle is The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia. That's what the book is about. The title, The Grandees of Government, tells you who done it. From the very beginning, Virginia was a steeply hierarchical culture. A few big shots, a lot of working people, even more indentured servants, and eventually enslaved people. Very hierarchical, very little opportunity for movement from one group to another. And of course, in the 17th century, this is very late Elizabethan England on the other side of the water, if you look at it that way. Very early on in this process, you see that a very small number of people are running just about everything. They own most of the land, they own most of the laborers, they write the first laws so as to give themselves political power and control of this new government, they shape this new government to suit their interests, and one of that interest is to make labor cheap. They import indentured servants, they import slaves, and by the middle and latter part of the first century, Virginia had become the kind of culture that it stayed for a long time. But the culture that I saw when I stepped back and looked at my mosaic was different than the culture that I read about when I first started 
researching Virginia's history in the early 1970s. What I read about then, and what you can still read about in many books, is a story that's kind of a triumphant story of progress and achievement and the development of institutions of representative government and eventually of religious liberty. Well, yes and no, that's all there. But other things are there too. The grandees of government, I mean, that sounds like I'm writing about Spanish colonial America, but I'm actually writing about Virginia. That phrase occurs in the 1750s in a letter to George Washington. Uh, Washington was uh, out on the frontier during the French and Indian War, and he sent an agent down to Williamsburg to collect the payroll for the regiment and maybe money to buy supplies with. The agent got to Williamsburg, and then nobody was there. The General Assembly had recently got into a big squabble with Governor Dinwiddie, and so when the General Assembly appropriated money to pay for the Virginia Regiment, they didn't let the governor touch it. They appointed a committee of Burgesses and council members, and that committee distributed the money. But it required a quorum of the committee for anything, anybody to do anything. The chairman of the committee was the Speaker of House of Burgesses, who was also treasurer of the colony, about as influential as you could get, when this guy got to Williamsburg, the speaker is absent out courting somebody's daughter. Nobody else was in town. The speaker comes back, everybody else left town. And so for several days, nothing happened. And the, uh, the agent finally wrote to Washington, we'll just have to wait on the conveniency of the grandees of government. That's where I, that's where I found my title. Because the, the grandees of government arranged the institutions and political practices of Virginia to suit themselves to give themselves control. Now it's human nature once you have to control, to keep it. They did that during the American Revolution when in fact there was very little revolution in Virginia. The Act for Establishing Religious Freedom that, that was adopted in 1786 was really the last and most important act of revolution in Virginia. But if you look at the Constitution of, eight, of 1776, you'll see that it, all it really does in most instances is institutionalize the practices and institutional structure that had existed all the way back to the 1620s. Not very revolutionary. A moment of insight. When I was working for the Revolution Bicentennial Commission in the 1970s, still thinking about the politics of Virginia in the 1920s and 30s, learning about the politics of Virginia early in the 17th century, I noticed that one of the things that the politicians of the Bicentennial Commission selected for us to do was to concentrate on independence and ignore the revolution. Well, that teaches me a lot about what the people, what the 20th century grandees of government still thought was most important. Now, it should be no surprise that people who are in charge of things try to maintain their control and try to uh, create institutions of government to suit themselves. That could sound like I'm a Marxist, but I'm not. But that's, in fact, the way the world works. But there's another thing that attracted my attention at the very same time, and it runs at a cross-current for this resistance to change that features, that features so largely in Virginia's history and culture. Ideas. Now we don't normally think of, we read Todd's newspaper, we don't normally think of ideas as having an important 
role in Virginia's politics. But in fact, in terms of the political culture, ideas of, are of the first order of importance. People's religious ideas and their philosophical beliefs matter a great deal when it comes to making choices among options in the public sphere. People's ideas about race, about gender roles, about economic change generally, about social and cultural change, about that hierarchy that they started off with. These kinds of ideas, you, if you look closely, you can see that they are of fundamental importance throughout all of Virginia's history. Some of those ideas promote stability. Some of those ideas undermine that stability. I'll give you an example. All men are created equal. Everybody in this room knows who wrote that, right? Right? Yeah, okay. Thomas Jefferson wrote that. George Mason wrote something very similar. Within about three weeks earlier, George Mason wrote his draft for the Virginia Declaration of Rights and said, all men are born equally free and independent. Neither one of them believed that. They were writing political propaganda. The Virginia Declaration of Rights and the Declaration of Independence were intended to persuade people to join them in a collective act of mass treason. That's, that's what a revolution is if it succeeds. You know, it's a revolution. If it fails, it's a treason. Neither one of them believed that all men were created equal. If they had, they would have freed their slaves. They didn't believe that all people were created equal. If they had, they would have said people, not men. They were not writing a philosophical tract here. They were writing political propaganda. They were speaking about the political nation. They were speaking to the political nation. They were speaking for the political nation. They were talking about the people who ran the country. They were talking about the grandees, the voters, the adult male property-owning Virginia establishment. Those people were equal to one another. They were not inferior to royalty and nobles and parliamentarians in London. That's what the language of the Declaration of Rights means. That's what the language of the Declaration of Independence means. That's what it meant to the people who wrote it. That's what it meant to the people who adopted it. To the people who read it, however, this was a time bomb. If you look at American history, you look at Virginia history, you can see that that promise of inclusion in the political nation that that language includes, that promise of inclusion is the mainspring that drives most of our interesting history. The promise of inclusion, that all people really are created equal and therefore entitled to equal treatment, was at the root of the struggle of all the rest of the white people of Virginia, the poor white trash like me, to win the vote between the Revolution and the American Civil War. It animated the struggle for the abolition of slavery. It animated the post-Civil War struggle of people who had been enslaved to obtain and retain the vote in order that their freedom would not be merely an absence of slavery, but would be real citizenship. That promise animated the struggle for woman suffrage early in the 20th century. It's behind the struggle for the Civil Rights Movement in the 20th. When George Mason and Thomas Jefferson let that language out of Pandora's box, they set loose the most important 
stream of events in American history that helps us understand what's going on. We tend to look when we study history, especially people who study political history and military history, we tend to look at the dramatic moments of change. That's where the good stories are. At times of change, people who are in favor of change have to explain themselves. That's how we learn why they're doing what they're doing. And at those same times, the people who oppose change have to explain themselves. That's how we learn why they prefer no change. That's where we learn the most. That's where the good stories are. That's where most of the books on the library shelf come from. That's not where all the history is, though. These dramatic moments of change or failed attempts at change occur episodically throughout American history, episodically throughout Virginia history. What about all those times in the middle? They teach us a lot, too. You know, they say, everybody says, and it's true, that uh, change is the one constant in life. But when I step back and look at my mosaic of Virginia's political history and culture, what I see is that continuity stands out more than change. Continuity is the context in which the change takes place. So I looked for, at the continuity to see what was going on. And I was finding that the grandees did a hell of a good job in keeping control of things. They did a hell of a good job in keeping people from joining the political nation. Uh, Virginia was one of the very last states to allow white men to vote if they didn't already own a farm. Virginia was the last state to allow married women to own and control their own property. Virginia was one of the first states to reconstruct itself into an old South after the end of the Civil War. At the beginning of the 20th century, and for the next about 50 years, Virginia allowed a smaller proportion of its citizens to vote than any other place in the country, than in almost any other place in the world. The legacy of the grandees is a set of governmental institutions and a set of practices and a political expectation that there are some people who are entitled to govern and who are entitled to govern as they please and that most of the rest of us are not. I had three questions when I started in graduate school and it quickly led to a fourth. Why was it that that Constitutional Convention of 1901 and 2 could write a constitution that disfranchised more than half of the voters in the state, including more than half of the white voters. Why could they do that, put it into effect without a referendum, and almost nobody complained? That's the astonishing thing. You know, there's, there's a famous Sherlock Holmes story in which he advises someone to pay attention to what the dog did in the nighttime. The other guy says, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. Holmes says, that's the curious incident. The dog knew the burglar. The people of Virginia didn't do much when they had their votes taken away. And why was that? I'm still not sure of the answer to that. Maybe I have to write another book. Virginia exhibits these fascinating episodes of attempts at reform and reversions of reform. That's Trying to figure this out is what made me write this book. Trying to understand how Virginia could be different from its neighbors. Virginia is very different in its political culture from Maryland, West Virginia, 
Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina. Very different from D.C. Um, in many ways, Virginia stands outside of the normal patterns that you perceive and that we talk about for the South. In some ways, Virginia is much more a mid-Atlantic state than a southern state. And of course, up until 1863, Virginia was one of the most important Ohio Valley states, too. We tend to forget that in, down here on this side of the fall line, but it's true. Virginia occupied a peculiarly important and significant place in American history, geographically, culturally, politically, and economically. Virginia was the acknowledged leader of almost everything until about the time of the Civil War. And for many Southerners, Virginia was the acknowledged leader of the opposition to civil rights in the 20th century. People in Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana were waiting to see what those Virginians did. Well, we know what those Virginians did. Well, which Virginians? Some Virginians were for massive resistance. They'd rather close the schools altogether than see them desegregated. But that was a very small minority of Virginians. A lot of people were very conflicted. What do we do in this time of genuinely profound change, sometimes scary change? The Virginians I like to look at for the 1950s and 60s are the advocates of change, the civil rights activists. Birmingham, Selma, Montgomery, lots of other places have got most of the attention in the civil rights movement, but Virginia's place in the civil rights movement is extraordinarily important. Not because what, what took place in the streets, although we did have our riots, we did have our beatings, we did have our killings, we did have some serious civil disturbance in Virginia. What really stands out to me about Virginia in the civil rights period, though, is that it was mostly a courtroom battle, not a street battle. There were probably more important civil rights cases that arose in Virginia than in any other one state. Poll tax, public accommodations, public transportation, uh, school desegregation, of course, um, and Loving versus Virginia, the case about interracial marriage. How and why was it that Virginia's civil rights movement was so much a courtroom drama? You know, that's not obvious that it should be that way. And because it was that way, it's not obvious that it was important. The hell of it is, black Virginians were very like white Virginians in some respects. The law was important. Rules and procedures were important. Politics was impossible. Street protests were not likely to work. Black Virginians, parents, students, lawyers, businessmen, used white institutions, the courts. They used white legal language, they used white legal precedents to challenge white racial segregation, and they, and they won. Now, they didn't win in the state courts because the state courts were composed of the grandees and their descendants, but they used the federal courts to wonderfully powerful effect. The civil rights lawyers from Virginia are overwhelmingly the most innovative and successful of all civil rights lawyers in the United States during that period. I mean, I, th I think some of the people like Sam Hill and Spotswood Robinson and Oliver Hill, those people deserve to be classed right along with Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington as great successful revolutionaries. They did something that was virtually impossible. They overturned an entire legal edifice 
of exclusion and racism and bigotry. They did it through the courts because the grandees had made it impossible for them to do it through the voting box. But they did it, and they succeeded. I mean, a lot of people look at these cases and say, oh, this is just more outside intervention. It was outside intervention when Congress did something, but who did something first? The federal courts did something first. And why did the federal courts do it? Because Virginians brought cases to the federal courts. Children and parents challenged inequalities in the public schools. Teachers challenged inequality in the public schools. These great ca cast of civil rights lawyers carried those cases through and won them in the federal district courts and in the Supreme Court of the United States. The civil rights movement in Virginia was, in fact, one of the great democratic successes in our history. In fact, it was democratic in a couple of ways. It was democratic in that it was a grassroots organization. Even the NAACP, which furnished much of the legal assistance to the, to the lawyers, was not always in favor of moving as far or as fast as the parents and the students wanted to move. So they drove the agenda. This is definitely a grassroots revolution. And it was democratizing in that it drew into the public sphere a great many people who had thought they had no opportunity to influence anything through the public sphere. And when they won the poll tax cases and when um, Congress and the uh, Constitution finally abolished the poll tax altogether, black people registered to vote and became part of the process. They still faced many odds. We still have in Virginia a much smaller proportion of African Americans in our legislature and in our local governments than in most other places in the country. That we have any at all, I think, is a testimony to those civil rights activists of the earlier decades. Anyway, what I look at when I see my mosaic is a lot of wonderfully interesting little tiny pictures. But if you put them all together, you see a picture that is both depressing and exhilarating. It's depressing in that for so much of our history, a very small portion of people ran things. It was very undemocratic. They would say, well, it's not supposed to be a democracy, it's a representative government. But who did they represent? For the first two centuries, it was a government of the tobacco planters, for the tobacco planters, and by the tobacco planters. And for the next two centuries, by and large, a government of the businessmen, by the businessmen, and for the businessmen. The professional classes, generally, are the descendants even if not genetically, politically, culturally, they're the, the descendants of the early grandees. You know, for a kid who grew up poor, like me, white kid, son of school teachers, we could have never made it anywhere in Virginia in that old culture. We would have been without any voice at all. Well, we had language, we had ideas, we had all men are created equal. And even though all men weren't created equal, by golly, you can make progress toward it. So that's what this book is about. It's also about 400 pages, so. <laughs> but it had to be a long book because it's a long story. It's, it's four centuries long. If you know some, if you're an expert in some part of this history, if you know a lot about the 1930s or you know a lot about the Civil War, you may not learn anything much from what I have to say about that period. Uh, we're looking at the same mosaic then. We all studied it carefully. But if you back up and look at how each one of these episodes of change, each one of these attempts at change, and all of these long periods of stasis, if you step back and look at all of them, you'll see something different. You'll see how 
if you change the story, the parts also change. If you change the parts, the story changes. Anyway, that's what I tried to do. One of these days, maybe I'll write a book on the readjusters. Thank you. Part of the bargain was is if they fed me lunch, I would have to subject myself to questions. Um, there are a couple of people here with microphones. Could we use them so everyone is, uh, be, will be able to hear? Okay, well, let, let Paul recognize. It's, it's his fault if you don't get called on. An interesting uh, mosaic. Uh, some of us might think of uh, Harry Bird Sr., certainly. Who were some of the more interesting grandees that you encountered? The man for, uh, who was first called a grandee was John Robinson, Jr., who was without question the most uh, competent, influential, powerful, and corrupt native-grown Virginian during the colonial period. He was Speaker of the House of Burgesses for several decades. At that time, they always made the Speaker of the House the treasurer. And if you're the treasurer of the colony at those days, you didn't get a salary. You got to keep a portion of all the money and all the tobacco notes that went through your office. So he had all this money. He had all this power in the legislature. He also then lent his own money to politicians. Now, you can imagine the consequence of that. He also lent a lot of public money to other politicians. So he augmented his wealth, he augmented his political power, he augmented his influence by an interrelated inter collection of family and personal political obligations and financial obligations. That's the way the grandees worked. I mean, it's absolutely a fascinating episode. The only way we know about it is because when he died, they found that his accounts were all messed up. Now, it, it, was, it, was, it was commonplace, and every time the assembly met, every year or two, they would appoint a committee of leading Burgesses to review the accounts of the treasurer, and they always report everything is in perfect order. <laughs> well, those guys all owed him a big pile of public money that he'd lent them. So when this scandal broke, it really shook Virginia up to a great extent. And there were people, people like Richard Henry Lee, you've heard of him, who said we must abolish the link between the speaker's office and the treasurer's office. That's putting too much power in any man's hands. I'll tell you who else said that. George II, the King of England, had been trying to separate that office for years. They did separate it after Robinson died. But seeing how that little incipient political machine that he created, seeing how that worked explains a lot. You know, Virginia was a closed society politically. They were all related to one another. It's even worse than it is now. Um, they all owed money to one another. It's even worse than it is now. They had all of these interconnected obligations. I owe you, you owe my grandpa, my grandpa owns my grandma, my grandma owes me. That's the way it worked. As long as nobody called in the debt, it's okay. Or as long as John Robinson didn't die, it's okay. So, you know, you can see episodes like this that are also part of the life stories of really fascinating people doing really interesting things, sometimes really nasty things, and it helps explain quite a lot. That's one of the most interesting people. Um, another question? Or? Way in the back. 
Uh, first, I want to thank the Historical Society for doing this. I live in Matthews County. Uh, we don't even have a blinking light, let alone a stoplight. But this 70 miles to come up here for these events is much worth it. Well, thank you for coming. Yes. Uh, I'd like to make a few observations, if I may. You talked about the Constitution of 1901, and it reminded me of uh, a Mark Twain saying, it's easier to fool people than it is to convince them they've been fooled. And maybe that's why there was no more uprising. Actually, let me interrupt with a, with a comment, and then, then you can get to the rest of your comment. When I was in graduate school, and I was, I was wondering about, how did they get away with this without much complaint? And I asked a graduate student, colleague of mine, what did she think? What did she hear from her grandparents about this kind of stuff? And, you know, she was an ordinary white person. She wasn't a, of a grandee's family. And she said, well, we didn't think we were entitled to complain. Somebody needs to write a book on why they didn't think they were entitled to complain. You, you're exactly right. And, and that's happening a lot today right here. But to go back to some of the things that Virginia, unfortunately, is noted for, the uh, Indian tribes in Virginia are the only ones in the entire country that are not federally recognized. And you know, for years, there were no Indians in Virginia according to the law. My father was the only clerk in this state that would put by the race an Indian on a marriage license. And that was against the law. You either had to be black or white. That's pretty so, amazing. You know, Virginia made it illegal to be an Indian. Yes, that, that's right. They did. They, absolutely. And lastly, uh, and then I, I would appreciate your comments on this. We're not supposed to repeat history, but we off, always do. And it reminds me of what you were talking about the way we began, the few and the many who had nothing. Well, in today, the United States, 90% of the salaries are earned by less than 3% of the people. And 80% of all the assets in this country are held by less than 2%. And these are getting exponentially worse. And we sit here like a frog in water and don't realize we're in trouble until the water's too hot to get out. Thank you again for being here. Well, thanks for the comment. Um, I, I, I generally agree with you. Um, it's hard to escape history, not because it necessarily repeats itself, but because we're all embedded in it. You know, we grew up at a certain time, learned certain things about race and religion and gender roles and about our family's past and our grandparents' past and our country's past. And that's how these attitudes get propagated through time. I've actually got a section in the, in the book dealing with 20th century literature on Virginia history and how it is more a literature of hero worship and mythology preservation than it is a work of historical analysis. Another question? Uh, my compliments also on one of the finest banner lectures yet. Uh, I have a comment. Uh, it would be nice to see the Times-Dispatch uh, perhaps editorialize that every member of our General Assembly should have a copy of this book. Well, you know, there is a difference between having a copy of a book and reading a book. <laughs> and there's a difference between reading a book and agreeing with it. And not everybody's going to agree with this. And that's, a, I, you know, you remember the old adage, if two people always agree, at least one of them is not thinking. 
<clears throat> I'm from Norfolk, and I've learned a lot from your earlier book on Norfolk Borough. My question is, how does General Mahone fit into your story? General William Mahone, brigadier during the American Civil War on the side of the Confederacy, uh, a, a very, very important mid-19th century Virginian. He started out as a railroad man. He, he built the first railroad from Norfolk to Petersburg, and after the war, he got control of the railroad from Petersburg to Lynchburg, and then he got control of the railroad from Lynchburg to Bristol, and that became the Norfolk and Western, a tremendous railroad empire. Um, he was the leader of the readjusters to whom I referred, the, the man who assembled this unprecedented collection of poor white farmers, working men of both races, city and rural, uh, African Americans, uh, disaffected Democrats, Republicans, people from all walks of life, to try to figure out a way to refinance the public debt so we didn't send half our tax money to New York and London speculators who held our debt, so that that money would stay here and go into the public school system. Um, Billy Mahone's career is very remarkable. You know, at the, at the end of the Civil War, he was one of the founders of what they call the Conservative Party. This was a party that was opposed to congressional reconstruction. It was opposed to black suffrage. It was opposed to all of the changes that the Civil War brought about with the possible exception of the abolition of slavery. But by the end of the 1870s, Billy Hone really was reconstructed. Billy Mahone corresponded with common, ordinary black voters. I don't know any other white politician did that till Henry Howell. Um, Billy Mahone changed. He had a revolutionary experience during. The, he was from Petersburg. He was. Uh, he led this biracial political coalition, arguing against privileging out-of-state creditors above the public school system. He spoke on behalf of a lot of Virginians who had never had a voice, people who were now for the first time able to vote. They actually took over the state government. They gained majorities in the General Assembly in two consecutive elections, and they elected a governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. They, in turn, elected an entire bench of Supreme Court of Appeals members who served for 12 years. This was the most revolutionary thing that ever happened in Virginia until the Civil Rights Movement, maybe even rivaling the Civil Rights Movement in Portland. But because it was biracial, it was vulnerable. And just as soon as they completed the task of refinancing the debt, a large proportion of the white political leaders who had agreed with them on the debt question bailed out, joined the white supremacy Democrats, and crushed the readjuster party to death. It's a very, very quick counter-revolution. Um, Billy Mahone became a real hero to a lot of people. He also became the most reviled political leader in all of Virginia's history, and it's largely because of the issue of race. Mahone's papers are at Duke University gigantic collection of a quarter of a million or more items and a big shelf full of letter books. Last time I was down there, I finished the work I was going to do oh, half an hour or so before I needed to leave, and so I just sort of called down at random some scrapbooks, some this, some that, some of the other things. And one of the bound volumes, I write about this in the book, one of the bound volumes that came was, you know, you, you've seen maybe you've seen 18th and 19th century bound record books. They look like a big book, and it's a bound volume of blank paper, and you kept your business records in it, or you kept your accounts in it. Uh, these were commonplace. Well, this one came down, and on 
either the spine or the front cover, I forget which, it says Mahone's Brigade. I pretty much knew what that was. I opened the book and there it was, long lists of men who had served in Mahone's Brigade in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. It was undated, so I didn't know when the list was made. I don't know whether it was all the people who ever served, or maybe it was the people who were alive in a certain year when they were thinking about having a reunion. But Mahone's Brigade was one of the most famous of the Confederate Brigades. You know, Stonewall Jackson's Brigade, Hood's Texas Brigade, Mahone's Brigade, those were about the most famous, effective Confederate Army units. But then here's Billy Mahone becoming a leader of a biracial coalition. Lots more blank pages. Well, what's in, anything in the back of the book? I looked in the back of the book, and what I saw was that somebody had taken that book, probably Billy Mahone's secretary, had taken that book and turned it over and opened it up and made a list of black clergymen in Virginia to whom Billy Mahone corresponded asking for political support, probably when he ran for governor in 1895. I mean, it's amazing. I think there's nothing that survives even remotely like that in any other manuscript collection. And it's even better. It's got his Confederate brigade in part of the book and his black brigade in the other part. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't make this up. <laughs> if you read something like that in fiction, nobody would believe it. But it's down there, you can go look. Yeah, Billy, Billy Mahone is, uh, uh, explains a great deal about Virginia's history, both what it was and what it didn't become. Another question? Another? Yeah. Uh, nobody's punched me on the nose yet. I feel very lucky. Okay. Uh, back to uh, Indian times. Uh, can you describe uh, the process by which the grandees uh, took uh, the lands that were appropriated from the Indians and made them private property and decided how they were going to be uh, distributed? Well, of course, in the beginning, we always start in the beginning. In the beginning, of course, um, the land grants from the king to the Virginia Company were very like the grants that other European kings issued for settlement. Any land that you find that is not inhabited by subjects of a Christian prince and is uncultivated is yours. So legally, according to English law, almost all of North America belonged to the Virginia Company from the beginning. They didn't have to ask anybody's permission. They didn't have to. Um, tell anybody else, they just did it. Now, of course, once the invaders got over here, they started elbowing people out of the way. And you can read some pretty hair-raising, ferociously brutal and bloody episodes of conflict between the very first families of Virginia and the English colonists. Uh, and I think the English get the worst of it in terms of how badly they behave. By 1640s, the warfare between the settlers and the original Virginians had subsided and you get the first of the treaties that grant Indian lands, um, it's not reservations, but it says the English shall not settle north of here and the Indians shall not move south of here. During the remainder of uh, the colonial period, you get acts of assembly or agreements between the government and Indian tribes that specify that this parcel of land belongs to this tribe. The Nansemans get this, the Rappahannocks get that, the Padawamocks get this. They were only just Indians, though, as far as English or Virginia law was concerned. They weren't real people. They weren't allowed to control or run anything. 
it was even questionable whether they actually owned that land that the government said was theirs. So, and I, this is a legal history question that I wish somebody would research and write because I'm unsure about some of the details and about many of the dates. But late in the 18th century, the government appointed white conservators to take legal command of the land that those Indian tribes were entitled to. They didn't actually own it. It's like being a guardian or a, a stepfather or something, that you were the legal agent for that tribe. And so uh, most of the Indian tribes that still existed then had this group of local white people in the role of protectors of the property. Um, and eventually, some of those tribes dwindled in number or chose not to live on that place and moved off, and those conservators then sold some of that property. All that was left by the 20th century was a Pamunkey and Mattapanai reservation. Uh, that's, you know, if you need a book to write, there's a good one. That, that would be a very, very interesting. I'd like to read that. I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately rather famous for telling people what books they should <laughs> write, but I want to read them. A jump from Indian lands to the 20th century. You mentioned reviled politicians, and what about Henry Howell, and wasn't he beaten down by the grandees? Um, pretty much, I'm afraid. Um, most of us in this room are no longer entirely young, so we will remember Henry Howell. Um, Henry was something of an insurgent. His ideas were more progressive than the establishment. Uh, and he very deliberately did not act like a Virginia gentleman was supposed to act. Remember Mills Godwin? I mean, Mills Godwin looked like a respectable, responsible, conservative politician ought to look. Dignified, handsome. He wasn't eloquent, but he was a forceful speaker, very reassuring to people who agreed with him. Henry Howe was just the opposite. He was loudmouth, he was brash, he was honest. He didn't paper over the differences. One of the things that the uh, 20th century grandees did was burnish their own images by taking the lead in deciding how things should be described. In the 1950s, they had massive resistance. They were going to mobilize the white population to the desegregation of public schools. <coughs> Anybody who suggested anything else, they treated as a traitor, called him a communist, burned crosses on their yards. There were people who were conservative Virginia white politicians who said, if we let one or two black students in here and there, we will technically comply with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will go away, and we'll substantially maintain segregation. Those people got treated as if they were traitors. Fast forward button up to the 1970s and 80s. Those massive resistors are still in public life, including Mills Godwin, did not apologize for massive resistance. They said, why, that was a good thing. We enabled the state to buy time so that desegregation could take place peacefully. Uh, that's what you call a lie. <laughs> that's not what they were doing. That may or may not have been the result of what they did. They didn't, they called it massive resistance. They didn't call it massive, wait a minute. So, you know, the, the grandees were very much on the defensive at that time. 
for reasons that, that are obvious. Um, um, there were two, the first two, the only two academic histories of all of Virginia that were ever published came out simultaneously in 2007. They differ wonderfully or interestingly in the way that they treat this period. One of them is a very good history of how the grandees resisted the civil rights movement. Really interesting. It's very well done. It's very persuasive. Very right. The other one is a history of how black Virginians fought to dismantle the segregated society. It's wonderfully interesting. It's very good. It's very right. It's much more inspiring. What's the real story here? The real story here is not that the grandees resisted change. What's new? The real story here is the story of the people who were trying to force change. And I think that's why the civil rights movement in Virginia is not only one of the most important things that ever happened in this state, it's one of the most revealing things that ever happened in this state. Because if, you know, when, when people are advocating change or when people are resisting change, they have to explain what they're up to. And there was no doubt what the civil rights activists were up to. And there's no doubt about what the massive resistors or wait-a-minuteers were up about either. I read Will Hustwitz's new book on James J. Kilpatrick. How much do we have? We have time for some more. Um, yes, sir. Uh, General Sherman was supposed to have said that the reason he disliked the South was its ruling class had a genius for getting people the working classes to uh, vote for and otherwise support a, their small political agenda. Uh, do you have any observations on that? Well, it reminds me of something in V.O. Key's 1949 book, Southern Politics and State and Nation, uh, where in, in the, the brilliant chapter on Virginia politics at the middle of the 20th century in that book. And one of the things he comments on is that he didn't call them the grandees because he hadn't read my book. <laughs> And he's dead now and won't. <laughs> but he, he, he saw things very much the way that I do. And, and one of his comments was is that the reason that the Byrd organization, or one of the reasons that the Byrd organization maintained its dominance in state politics for so long was that the leaders of the political organization were the leaders of the communities. They were the bankers. They were the newspaper publishers. Um, they, they were the people of influence in the community. They were the clerks of court. They were the Commonwealth's attorney. They were the judges. Um, they did control nearly everything. And they were able, because of the alliance with the newspapers, Harry owned newspapers, you got to remember that. With the alliance with the newspapers, they did actually manage to convince a lot of people that because these businessmen and bankers and politicians were running things, they far were entitled to run things. That may be part of the answer to the 1902 Constitution question. But there was an alliance of all of the people, or most of the people in most of the communities, that allowed them to set the nature of public debate. They owned the newspapers. They controlled who wrote the textbooks for the schools. Their daughters taught in the schools. Um, it, it, you, know, you, you get a self-perpetuating set of ideas and institutions and political practices. That's what I was trying to figure out how it, how it worked in Virginia, how it arose, how it worked. And that's why I, I wrote this book. 